Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. From both a foreign policy perspective and a military perspective for many, many years uh, is a decorated Army veteran, a retired U.S. Army colonel with deployments in four combat zones. He also happens to be a senior fellow and a military expert with defense priorities. And uh, he is uh, somebody that I really look to when it comes to analyzing military affairs and foreign policy. And that is Colonel Daniel Davis. Colonel, it's great to talk with you again. I wish it were under better circumstances. Uh, always good to be back on your show, Frank, and I couldn't agree with you more. I wish it was for a different reason. So, uh, Colonel, uh, the big news in the last 24 to 36 hours appears to be uh, Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, urging NATO and the United States to establish a no-fly zone over Ukraine. President Biden appears unwilling to do that so far because he doesn't want to be in a position to shoot down a Russian jet. Uh, From your perspective, is President Biden making the right decision not establishing a no-fly zone? Uh, I I mean, of course he is. It's it's, it's madness for even anyone to think about that. And I have been actually very troubled that I've seen not just some members of Congress call for it. I mean, I guess I could excuse some of that because they don't really understand all the ramifications of it. But I've seen three former uh, U.S. generals, NATO commanders, uh, give various levels of of support to that. And that's that should trouble everybody that a military guy is is advocating that we set up a no-fly zone because the issue is not establishing a no-fly zone. The issue is uh, uh, setting it up so that you actually have to make good on it. It's enforcing the no-fly zone. So, yeah, you would set up a situation for the benefit of Ukraine that would put American fighter pilots in a position to either be shot down by a Russian aircraft or that we would have to shoot down a Russian aircraft or shoot down a, a Russian uh, surface-to-air missile battery on the ground. And, and of course, then now that you in direct conflict with Russia and now then all the worst-case scenarios uh, become possible where you have direct military engagement between the United States and Russia, and, of course, the threat of nuclear war goes through the roof. And that, that's insane to even contemplate. So, yes, President Biden is 100 percent right, and I hope he doesn't waver on that in, in the days ahead. I mean, what you laid out sounds very logical. Why would seasoned military commanders, including former NATO commanders, why would they be advocating uh, a, the establishment of a no-fly zone when they see that they've got to see the facts the same way that you do? Well, I, I mean, I can only speculate, of course, because I, I can't get in their head and they didn't explain why they thought it was a good idea. Uh, but, I, you know, the only thing that I can come up with is that there's just this, I don't know, sort of mental uh, paralysis of, of thinking that we've been doing for so many years with Iraq and Afghanistan to where we could literally do anything we wanted to, and that there is no enemy air force, there is no enemy air air defense capability. So you can set up a no-fly zone over Iraq, you can set it up over 
uh, you know, parts of, of Afghanistan, and there's no pushback. You can literally do whatever you want because no one has the capacity to do anything back. And maybe you just get into this mentality, this mindset that, yeah, we want to set up a no-fly zone, so that's what we're going to do. Uh, but, man, you, you better be able to dis- differentiate between an enemy that has no air defense capability and an enemy that has uh, nuclear weapons. And, man, I, I, I just it's just puzzling why they would even – I mean, nobody should be rejecting it worse than, than they do, uh, equal to what I'm doing right now. And I'm just not sure why that's not the case. No, neither am I. Needless to say, it sounds like you'd also be opposed to any American troops – going to Ukraine to fight the Russians. Well, yeah, and you know, and I, I've been saying that for absolutely months, uh, well over a year since this day, since Russia first started building up their forces around Ukraine uh, in, in uh, April and May of 2021, you know, because that was the first time people really thought, you know, is this, is this going to go to war because Russia was building up troops back then, et cetera. And, you know, there is no question. And for the very same reasons, there there is nothing, absolutely nothing going on between Russia and Ukraine that is worth the United States getting dragged into a war with a nuclear superpower that could go, you know, to the ultimate, uh, you know, war that none of us would ever want. Why, why would we risk a catastrophic war over something that absolutely has no national security implications for our country? I mean, look, what, every one of us hates the fact that what Putin's doing, uh, he deserves a lot of the, the pain that he's brought on his country. Uh, I mean, there's he is guilty of, of all of this stuff because nobody is, is at fault here except Vladimir Putin. I, I mean, I have been saying that uh, Zelensky should have made a deal a long time ago. He should have declared that he was not going to join NATO. The NATO should have withdrawn the offer so that we could have taken that off the table because that's Putin's red line. He's been saying it for well, 15 years that, that he would not tolerate that, and he finally made good on it. But it doesn't matter, even those things. Putin is wrong for, for invading another country and killing all these people, and it's just black and white that he's wrong. We did see one of the retaliatory actions that President Biden has taken is instituting sanctions. Uh, the SWIFT banking system is uh, basically shutting Russia out, and there's sanctions against a number of Russian individuals, including Putin himself. Noticeably absent from the American sanctions on Russia is any prohibition or any sanction on Russian oil and gas being imported to the United States. A two-part question, was the president right to institute the sanctions he has instituted, and B, was he right to omit oil and gas from Im- imported from Russia? Yeah, th- there's no question that, that Putin deserves uh, to be censured, and painfully so, and, and certainly some of these sanctions are, are doing that. Uh, so he richly deserves that, and, and uh, I'm okay with the concept of punishing Putin for doing this because that's a, a necessary, uh, I think, step. And I've been a little bit uh, surprised uh, and encouraged that we've seen so many nations around the world, not just the West, uh, but this is really a global phenomenon that's, that's really surprising, you know, how firmly the world has come out against him. But for, for similar reasons to why we're not sending in troops, we have to be careful that we don't go too far, because we already know that about a week before the uh, invasion, uh, Putin actually exercised his nuclear triad with, with his missile silos, uh, his, his bomber fleet, and his submarine-launched missiles. 
So he demonstrated his his country has the capacity to do this, to, to launch these nuclear missiles from all these different platforms. And then, of course, he put his forces on, on high alert here just, a, I guess, a day or so ago. And we have to be careful not to push Putin too hard that we go from punishment to coercion that makes him feel like he's threatened, like his regime is being threatened, and gives him any excuse whatsoever to think, man, I'm, I'm cornered here. I better you know, launch a tactical nuclear weapon or something on my periphery. Anything at all, as crazy as it sounds, the, the implications of that for mankind are so grave that we just dare not go too far in pushing Putin. And so oil and gas, uh, I think, is probably it's probably a good idea not to go there right now because that's the number one financial uh, uh, moneymaker for the Russian economy. And as much as pain as they've hit so far, you don't want to like completely choke them off to where Putin feels like it's an existential threat because that could have catastrophic responses as well. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Colonel Daniel Davis. He's a senior fellow with a think tank called Defense Priorities. He's also author of a terrific book, which is more relevant now than ever. It's called 11th Hour in 2020 America, How America's Foreign Policy Got Jacked Up and How the Next Administration Can Fix It. And what we're seeing right now, not only in Europe, but in the Middle East and uh, Asia, are some of the very same things that uh, Colonel Davis warned about in that book. Colonel, one of the things listening um, to you and others analyze the sanctions issue, it it seems to me that uh, one effect that sanctions may have is to push Russia and its economy closer to China and other bad actors that we don't necessarily deal with regularly. Uh, well, we deal with China, but we don't deal with countries like Iran and uh, Venezuela and uh, countries that we already have somewhat of an adversarial relationship. Does Do these sanctions risk pushing Russia closer into their orbit, number one, and also risk inviting a, a retaliation from Russia that might include serious cyber warfare or something like an EMP attack, for instance. Yeah, the, I mean, there's there's certainly those risks. That's one of the other things I had been, you know, warning about the possibility of. Uh, and, and Putin has been very methodically building up the capacity to withstand, because he knew that he was going to get sanctioned. He knew that that was a, a foregone conclusion. Um, as I mentioned, I think that the severity of it has, has shocked him. I don't think he expected it to be quite this bad. Nevertheless, he did put in place you know, direct deals with China, uh, with Iran, with Kazakhstan, with uh, Belarus, and several others that, that allow him to continue to be able to function to some degree, even with the other global problems. So at, without question, it's going to push him closer together. It's also going to make Russia more beholden. To China for whatever uh, amount of support that they decide to continue giving him, and uh, and of course there's also because they've been saying this from the beginning too that they're not just going to take sanctions lying down they're going to have some of their own and we don't know yet exactly what form that's going to take but the more pain that Russia has and especially if this uh, you know this looming invasion of of Kiev itself uh, comes off and if that's successful as it almost certainly will be. You know, he'll be in more of a position to to be able to take some countermeasures against us. And we don't know what that's going to be, but it could be problematic for us, too. Since you mentioned the uh, invasion of Kiev almost as being inevitable, there's been a lot of coverage over the last five and six, five or six days 
over how well the Ukrainians are doing fighting off the Russians. Is that media narrative an accurate one from where where you're sitting and observing what you're observing as somebody that's been uh, deployed multiple times in combat zones? Are the Ukrainians really doing great? Uh, it's it's way overblown. I'll, I'll tell you that the the Ukrainian military, uh, without question, has performed much better than anticipated. Definitely better than Russia anticipated. And in fact, Russia is uh, militarily is is guilty of overconfidence and and a really frankly a piss poor initial plan because they actually thought they could come in uh, on the light. Basically, they're trying to to come in on the cheap and just send a bunch of uh, armored vehicles to certain locations to try to seize road junctions. And they thought that just the presence of, of armor coming in on multiple axes uh, would, would force them to capitulate. They thought something like when the Taliban started fighting the Afghans in, in, uh, in the summer of last year and the Afghan military just collapsed, they thought something like that would happen and they could basically win a victory without hardly even fighting. As it turned out, that the Ukrainians actually were very brave and, and very, very tough fighters and, and stood up to the Russians and actually inflicted quite a bit of damage on those. However, uh, all of the combined arms operations that the Russian military is designed for, the, the artillery, the armor, the infantry, the, the missile forces, the air forces, all those things that, that I expected from day one, I thought they would come in hot and heavy they didn't, but all of those things are placed. So some of their logistics were messed up. They they didn't have enough uh, fuel. They didn't expect the, uh, the Ukrainians to interdict those things, which, you know, was a, a pretty bad judgment of error of judgment. Now then they've corrected those problems. And we're already seeing in the southeast uh, around Mariupol and some of the other places uh, around the Donetsk area, where the Russian forces are making substantial gains, and they're actually about to cut off uh, a substantial portion of the Ukrainian armed forces in that portion, upwards of 40,000 troops. And the problem remains that the fundamental capability of the Russian armed forces and the Ukrainian armed forces is a very vast gulf in capacity. So, yeah, the Russians messed up when they came in. They got caught with their pants down. But they have enough force that they're ready now to start really bringing the heat. And it's also not known by many people, and I certainly don't see it referred to in the media, which is a little bit of a puzzle to me, that Russia had only employed a small portion of its force. So they now, as that long column that you've referred to is is getting ready to come in from the north, uh, also other like tens of thousands of other armored vehicles, much of their more modern stuff is getting ready to come in both from the east and the south. And if they meet up there, then they can roll up to Kharkiv and hit it from the back and the front at the same time, from the north and the south. And the Ukraine armed forces just won't be able to stand up to that. Once that happens, then the entire force can turn west, and they can hit Kiev from basically uh, all four sides. And there's just no hope for them because as brave as they're fighting, they just don't have the capacity to match what Russia does. And, uh, and that last point I'll point out is that Russia has a, a very large air force of fighters and bombers, which have hardly been employed at all. Uh, and once they complete the remainder of the destruction of the Ukrainian Air Force's air defense capability, which is pretty close to being done now, 
they can almost fly in at will and just just bring unbelievable devastation uh, on the uh, Ukrainian military. They just can't stand up to it, it's, no matter how brave they are. That's why they should have made a deal before, and uh, it may be too late now. We're seeing reports that the Canadians are about to send more military aid to Ukraine. Is that a wise move, and is that something that the United States should be doing? It, 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 honestly, Frank, it's too late. I mean, you, just bringing in a bunch of weapons and a bunch of ammunition now, it's it's stuff that will be worrying or working around the fringes, but it's not going to stand up to an armored thrust uh, into an, uh, basically an infantry force that's not very mobile. It's just not going to matter. You can't get any of those weapons to the to the troops in the south and the east. I mean, they, you can't get it there. Uh, you can get it to the western part with some difficulty because Russia is continuing to hit airfields in the western part of the country right now, where a lot of that stuff would come in from. So you're you're reduced to bringing it overland, and once it gets into Russia, like I just said, they have control of the air, or will have it soon, and they could hit any convoys of that weapons before they ever even get close to Kiev. And Kiev right now is already pretty much surrounded. So it's 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 too little, too late. It's just not going to matter. And even if it all got in there, it's not enough to tip the balance in any way, shape, or form. Uh, the end is pretty much already written. We're also seeing uh, reports that the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, has applied to join the European Union. Uh, is that the right move from Ukraine's point of view? And how should the EU react to that? Uh, you know, I, I mean, that's that's fine. I mean, because that's not a military alliance. That's not a red line for Putin. Uh, I frankly think that that is something he should have a move he should have made before there was an invasion. He should have said, hey, you know what? We're not going to join NATO. We are going to join the EU. So we're going to just put the military lights on hold because that's what Putin's red line is. Uh, and so we don't want an attack. So we're instead going to go with the EU, which is like Finland did. Finland was a, a, a non-allied uh, neutral country, and it was a member of the EU. And so and that worked out very well because they maintained their freedom. They maintained their independence. They, they were not a vassal state by any stretch. And that was an option that Ukraine could have had before, but they just kept holding out for NATO membership. And I think that that decision is going to ultimately uh, be a really bad one. The president of our country, Joe Biden, was asked about the possibility of nuclear war yesterday. This was the question, and this is what President Biden said. I guess we don't have that ready. But anyway, he's... Well, and I have argued that when you invade a sovereign nation, that is a war crime. <laughs> I mean, I think we're... No, that was, that's world... actually Condoleezza Rice. But anyway, he said we shouldn't be worried about, um, about a nuclear war. Uh, we're seeing uh, Russia raise its, uh, its nuclear readiness. Are, do you think rank-and-file Americans should be worried about... A, or rank-and-file Ukrainians or rank-and-file Russians? Should people be worried about a nuclear war at this point? They should be worried, uh, and and that's and, and and but Biden's doing the right thing by not ratcheting up our nuclear posture because all that's going to do is move things closer to the potential use of it. But our, our forces, our, our nuclear triad, is such that we don't have to have you know the the force raised to a level to to be able to use it. Of course, we're twenty four seven, three sixty five, always watching, uh, you know, for any kind of a missile launch. So none of that would catch us by surprise anyway. But that certainly underscores what I said at the top of your show here. We can't push too hard and we can't impose too severe of a penalty on Putin 
that he feels like he gets desperate or that his regime is at stake, that he's even tempted to use one of them because the whole mutually assured destruction uh, phenomena is still fully engaged and fully embedded. Because if he fires one, we're going to fire one in return. There's no chance that we won't. And I mean, how do you stop it once it starts? And so the only way is to not start it because God only knows what happens after that. It's, it, it could be, you know, devastating for the entire uh, you know, Western uh, world. Uh, we're talking with Colonel Daniel Davis. He's a, a senior fellow with Defense Priorities. Zelensky is accusing Putin and the Russians of war crimes. As somebody that's been in war, do you believe that we've seen that? Are, are the Russians guilty of war crimes? Uh, I mean, look, we, we've seen yesterday there was a number of, uh, of at least evidence. And, you know, unfortunately, you have to always take every video you see with a grain of salt because of the propensity for deep fakes. And there's unfortunately just some really talented people out there. So you, you can't just automatically take things at face value. But we did see a lot of, of uh, images of uh, uh, huge Russian uh, artillery and rocket strikes like onto a mall and, and onto just the middle of a city that didn't seem to have any kind of military uh, function at all. And certainly that seems like it, it would meet that criteria. Of course, the question is, what do you do about it? And, and uh, if Russia completes its its uh, takeover of Kiev and they basically have conquered Ukraine, I don't know who's going to be able to bring anybody to you know, the International Criminal Court, but uh, it's certainly something that uh, may meet the definition of it. I mean, it certainly may. And we're also seeing um, a lot of comparisons in the media, both in the United States and internationally, of Vladimir Putin to uh, Hitler and the Nazis. And you're a student of history more so than most. Do you think that's an apt comparison? Is Putin behaving in a Hitlerian manner here? No, no. I mean, and look, and I get it. I understand why people do that, because that's just in our nature. We we love good and evil. We love the good guy and the bad guy. Zelensky has been turned into, you know, an international hero. And, you know, they call him a new uh, uh, what's that guy's name for the uh, Churchill. You know, they, he's doing all that. And so we've got to have the villain. So, of course, that's that's uh, Putin. And, of course, the villain of of preference today is Hitler. So everybody likes it. So they make him Hitler. Problem is, yeah, what he's doing is uh, there's a lot of evil in it. You know, attacking a country that you didn't have to attack, that didn't attack you, uh, that's as immoral as it gets. And there's already hundreds, if not thousands, of people are dead because of it. But the crucial thing is, I mean, when you talk about Hitler, everybody thinks about 1939 Poland. They think about 1940 France, uh, you know, and then rolling into Africa and then attacking the Soviet Union, et cetera. Putin does not have a fraction of the combat power necessary to do any of that stuff. I mean, you see how badly they performed against a, an, an infantry-led armored that, army that can't move very much. Uh, you know, they suffered severe casualties, and they're, you know, they're going to try to bring it back up now. But you see how much damage they've already had, and if they continue on to, to Kiev you know, on the march and they fight, you know, they're going to suffer even more casualties and more destruction of tanks and, you know, whatever else in, in the uh, fight. But e- even if they had to done any of that, you look at the totality of their armed forces, they don't have anywhere near enough people, probably even to take all of Ukraine, mm. much less one inch of NATO territory, because you can, he can go into Ukraine because he knew for sure that it's a one-country deal. It's a one-on-one. 
but he touches one inch of any NATO country, it's one on 30. And he, he just doesn't have the force of it. So even if he wanted to, even if he was as evil as Hitler was, he doesn't have the capacity. So other than saying, yeah, he's an evil guy, the comparisons to Hitler that had the capacity to dominate the entire Eurasian continent or European continent, he's not that. Final question, sir. And again, I want to encourage everybody to get uh, Daniel Davis's book. It's called 11th Hour in 2020 America. And even though the we're now in the year 2022, uh, this is even more important that you check out this book. Final question um, has to do with China and Taiwan. There's a lot of people concerned that China could take advantage of this sort of international chaos and move in uh, in on Taiwan. How real of a concern do you think that is? And if they were to do that, what should the reaction of the United States be? You know, before all this happened, I, I was making that argument. I was saying, you know, that I was actually concerned that, that China might make a move while Russia was moving here because the – you know, the U.S. and the global population was, was divided and focused here that they, they just didn't have the bandwidth to handle, you know, two major international crises in a row. But now I'm thinking that it might be the opposite, because I think that not only was Putin shocked at how unified the world has been and how stringent has been their uh, attack of, of anything that has to do with Russia and sanctions and whatever else, Putin, or uh, uh, Xi Jinping has to be going, okay, hang on. Uh, you know, you had a good, in your mind, you thought you had a good plan, but, you know, when you start war, uh, you know, no plan survives first contact and things start happening you didn't expect. And if the world reacts to Xi Jinping the way it's reacting to Vladimir Putin, he has to give a, a heavy second thought to what he may want to do because his economy could be severely sure. gouged as well. Colonel – uh, I, I appreciate the time. I know I see you on television late at night. I hear you on te- on radio early in the morning. You're around the clock these days. And I don't know how you find the time to write, but I appreciate you making some time for us. And uh, I'll look forward to chatting with you again soon, hopefully under better circumstances.